Hey there, I'm Gilad Barash, and welcome to Who's Your Data? The podcast that deals with how data influences life and how life influences data. The human side of data analytics. AI is rapidly changing the landscape of innovative health tech. In this episode, I chat with Dr. Yoni Goldwasser, a digital health investor and entrepreneur, about the exciting new trends in health tech and whether or not AI will advance enough to replace doctors in the future. We discuss how accurate medical models need to be in his opinion, how he and his team of investors evaluate new health tech startups in terms of algorithms and bias in the data, and he provides tips on what makes a good startup pitch. Let's get to the interview. Okay, Yoni, welcome to the Who's Your Data podcast, and it's good to have you on. Thank you for having me. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your uh, background and how you got involved in health tech and AI? Yeah, sure. Um, so I, well, I guess it starts with the fact that my father's a physician who also uh, made the transition into VC. Uh, but uh, I, um, myself, I, I uh, did a BA in chemistry, kind of fell in love with science, uh, decided to do a PhD in medical engineering at Harvard MIT, which was kind of awesome, but also realized I didn't want to stay in academia. So then uh, went into kind of the business world and worked. My first job was actually at uh, Teva Pharmaceuticals, uh, where I built my first uh, health tech product, although we didn't call it that at the time, but it was essentially building their BI from, from scratch. And then uh, continued in uh, uh, BCG, did uh, management consulting, co-founded a couple of startups, uh, worked in VC, both um, in Israel and in Germany. And uh, yeah, now I'm here in Berlin leading an angel group that invests uh, in health tech. How do you feel about the current landscape of health tech startups? And what are some exciting trends? Exciting trends. So I think one of the things that excites us uh, as, a, as a group of investors is any technology that augments uh, healthcare providers. Healthcare providers can be uh, essentially you. Uh, thought of in, in um, several dimensions. One is where they provide some sort of analytical component. Uh, so they try to get to a diagnosis and provide a prognosis and find a treatment plan. Uh, it's something that is very, very algorithmic. And that is something that, uh, for example, AI lends itself very natural to uh, because uh, AI is all about finding uh, patterns and matching them with other patterns. So this is something that uh, in our minds is something that's very obvious that it is gonna become more and more a feature of uh, healthcare. Then there's a part of uh, the healthcare provider, which is essentially this um, bedside manner, uh, uh, supporting patients more on a, a psychological level. This is something that for many years, I heard the counter argument that that is this like human touch is something that can never be really replaced. And we're seeing that that's also not true. So we're already seeing, uh, you know, there's been uh, recently these publications that when AI answers uh, patients' uh, questions, at least I think it was on Reddit, patients actually prefer the, the tone and style of the AI over what is offered by actual physicians. So I think that's also something that we're going to see coming more and more through. And then the Third piece is, let's call it any kind of manipulation of the physical world. So it's, it's essentially robotics. And we're already seeing uh, some simple robots that you know help mobilize patients, get them in and out of beds, that type of thing. And of course, very complex robots like Da Vinci that uh, uh, kind of uh, actuate movements from uh, over distance. 
but I think we're gonna try and start and see more and more also uh, robotic systems that are either uh, semi-independent and eventually independent of human uh, operators. Initially, I think the, the places where it's going to catch on is, first of all, situations where you, you just don't have access to um, uh, physical care providers and also in situations where it's technically a little bit more feasible. For example, uh, when you're talking about operating on, for example, a spine, that's a situation where there's um, the operating uh, field is quite stable and fixed. Uh, so that's much easier to treat than obviously some of these, um, you know, intra-abdominal type uh, operations. Uh, and there's, a, by the way, there's a fourth element that unfortunately is also a part of uh, physicians' uh, lives uh, that is very prominent, which is everything that has to do with administration, in that there we're already seeing, you know, huge um, leaps in what uh, technology can help uh, doing. And, and what I've, you know, advocating for years now and is finally happening is essentially, um, you know, uh, the kind of Alexa that sits on a physician's desk and um, creates an automated note, like a, a summary of the visit, which is, again, something that uh, all this documentation that physicians use to have to take uh, hours and hours of their day to do, these should hopefully all be automated in the next couple of years. So that's a lot of different tasks that uh, AI can do and that health tech is taking over. And that leads to the question that you actually asked in a recent Medium article, will AI replace doctors? And so you state that there's a constant debate on what role AI will play in medicine as far as uh, whether it's a tool that doctors will use or to the extent that it will replace doctors and nursing resources. Can you expand about that debate and um, what led you to write that article? The point I was making is, is, is exactly what, what I just talked about, was um, that if you take kind of a reductionist approach to um, what makes up a physician, um, it's those four elements that, that we just discussed. And then the question became, why is there some sort of theoretical limit that would disallow technology to completely replace physicians in one of these aspects? And my argument, um, and that I haven't heard anybody seriously refute yet, is that, that there is no such limit. Uh, it might be an issue of time. It might be an issue of uh, people willing to accept the replacement of, you know, uh, healthcare professionals by machines. But from a technological point of view, I don't really see where that limit is. And to be completely fair, I also think that I don't know what jobs will remain eventually. Like if you're looking like, you know, in a time horizon of, you know, 20, 30 years, I don't know what any of us are going to be doing anymore. So it's, it's not just doctors and nurses, of course. And to be fair, there's also a lot of, I, I am definitely not saying that this is going to happen uh, anytime in the next five or even 10 years. I think there's a lot of reasons why uh, we want to make this transition a little bit, a little bit slower than uh, even if it could be faster from a technological point of view. But I also think that we're going to start seeing these things applied again, where the resources don't uh, give better options. So we're thinking right now, you know, we're sitting here um, in in Berlin, and we're talking about you know uh, systems that have an abundance of resources of physicians uh, and nurses, uh, increasingly less so, but but still when you compare it to some other regions in the world. 
and those regions uh, don't have the luxury of trying to staff you know their healthcare system the way that we do here and for those uh, regions having access to um, uh, this uh, what we consider now as maybe a second best option uh, is actually much better than what there is available to them today and so i do see that these technologies are probably going to catch on quicker in uh, resource-poor areas. There's, of course, like an ethical question here about deploying technologies that are being tried out for the first time in, in, in these types of areas. But um, again, I think that given the fact that we don't have a better option to offer, I think it's actually a fair way to try and, and um, again, deploy these technologies and, and hopefully help people who, who don't have a better option. Now, you mentioned that you know, being a doctor requires a lot of different skills from diagnosing, performing surgery, communicating with patients. And like you said, some of these tasks are better suited for today for AI, ones that are more around pattern recognition, like detecting lesions in MRI scan, where there's very clear labeled data that can be used. But then there are some tasks, like you mentioned, the bedside tasks and uh, you know, looking at clinical data that's derived from humans charts, lab notes, et cetera, which tends to be a lot dirtier and not as clear. It's messy and it's incomplete. But these, like you said, are crucial for triaging and diagnosing. Are these algorithms as advanced or are they advancing in the same way that the traditional pattern recognition, supervised learning, labeled data that does the lesion detection, for example? Are these catching up to those? I think so. I, I, I One of the things that, that I'm constantly uh, surprised by is just how good uh, some of these systems are um, uh, at doing tasks that um, I, I believe are new to them. It's like summarizing information, uh, understanding um, context. Uh, they're doing much, much better than I would have thought uh, possible. That is not to say that I would feel comfortable just today, you know, feeding uh, uh, one of these models a uh, medical record and, and expecting it to provide accurate responses about that data. The, the, the cost of making an error in healthcare is, is, is much higher than, than maybe in many other areas. So I definitely think that this requires a lot of uh, careful thought and understanding, and, and we also don't want to create um, systems that are complete black box. One of the things that I've found interesting, by the way, to see in these LLM models, I mean, of course you can't, um, it's very hard to decode exactly what they're doing in, the, in kind of like the background, but they are not so bad at explaining why they are doing, what, why they choose to give answers that they're giving. I think, I think these, all of these, are, all these um, models are super interesting and I think they're really going to help us um, make huge leaps in the coming couple of years in terms of um, uh, cleaning up and understanding this you know, messy medical data. You mentioned the high cost of mistakes in medical models. So let's talk about that a little bit, accuracy in the models. So in ab tech, where I come from, if you can get an accuracy of you know, 60% in a model, that's great. We're happy. Nothing's going to happen if we show a, uh, you know, an ad for a hearing aid to a teenager. But in the medical field, of course, uh, mistakes are much higher. You can have false positives, such as misdiagnosing cancer in a healthy patient. 
And you can also have false negatives, which are, mis for example, misdiagnosing a sick person as healthy. And these mistakes can cost human lives. How accurate do medical models have to be, in your opinion, for them to be acceptable for use? I think that they need to be at least as good as what's available to the patient otherwise. Again, in the Western world, we think about this as what, you know, this needs to be better than a physician. But you also need to take into account that even, again, in, in the West, we have very different healthcare scenarios. Just as a, as a, as a small example, um, you know, if you take the gold standard of, of identifying kind of stroke uh, in, uh, from uh, imaging data, I think what, for example, also with, you know, when you're trying to like pass through the FDA, what you're trying to show is that it's better than some sort of gold standard, which is the two or three of very highly trained physicians that are all looking at the data and coming to some sort of conclusion about, you know, whether or not there's a stroke in the, in the uh, image that they're looking at. The reality of, of healthcare is actually often very different from that. So very often, you know, a patient will, with a stroke is going to show up to a rural hospital, you know, in the middle of the night where the only person looking at this imaging, at, le at least until morning, is, you know, a young physician with very little training where you see that actually their, their accuracy is, is very, very low. And so if you ask me, you know, if you had, if, if in, in that type of situation, if, if the, the, the physician's accuracy is, I don't know, 70% and uh, you come up with an algorithm that is 80%, that's an improvement. It's just hard for us to kind of really admit that and, and to come to terms with that. But that is actually, you know, again, if I were, in the, if I were the patient in that situation, I would prefer the AI to make the decision rather than the young doctor. But it's, of course, a little bit more complex than that, and we can't offer different uh, types of safety to different parts of our, you know, within the same healthcare system. But I do think that some of these applications are going to show up in some regions, in some countries, in some uh, um, applications. I think of battlefield applications. I think they're going to show up um, uh, faster in some areas than others. One of the things I always hear when talking about utilizing modeling scores for making decisions, whether it be, I think, in healthcare, certainly in, in the financial world, you know, when, you, when, when the uh, algorithm may decide that somebody is of high risk for defaulting on a loan, is that it should really be used as one data point in the decision-making process and not necessarily the end-all be-all and say, okay, the algorithm decided, but probably is worth um, Further review, as you mentioned, this also speaks to transparency and, and readability of the results so that doctors can know how the algorithm arrived at the decision. So again, so having some sort of understanding of how the decision was made, I think, is going to be critical in medicine. But with regards to uh, always having a person there to kind of check, I, I think we're all going to feel much more comfortable with that in the foreseeable future, but I think that uh, statistically that may not, may not even always make sense. For example, uh, imagine a situation where the, uh, uh, the, the algorithm is actually better at making decisions than, than a person, and then it, the per a person, uh, say a physician, comes and overrides the decision of the machine and actually makes it worse. I think we'll very quickly actually reach a point in, in some applications where that might be the case. And again, in certain scenarios and in, in certain 
conditions. Uh, um, I, I think that, that we're very soon going to, to, to reach situations where the uh, algorithm alone might be better at making decisions than um, in, this, in this human in the loop type of situation. And then we're gonna have to ask ourselves, that's a very good question. I mean, do we want to have this like, um, do we, do we try, are we scientists? Do we trust the statistics and, and the, 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 the information that we're being presented? Or are we going with what makes us feel better as people, which is maybe to, again, to, for how, to have a human who could possibly override the decision of the machine before you know, the decision is, is, becomes final. Again, I have my preference, but I think this is going to be a kind of uh, not an easy uh, debate because I think different people will have very different uh, thoughts about this. That's really interesting point that you make, and it makes me think of a uh, sort of an, an end point scenario for AI that uh, is called planned obsolescence. And it's something that researchers are talking about where it's a potential future endpoint with AI systems where humans have to rely on AI systems in order to make decisions and in order to be competitive. Because whether it's economic, marketplace, military, medicine, if everybody's using AI, you're at a disadvantage if you're not. And if you are letting, if the AI systems Become, you know, for example, if, the, if you're a general and you entered a war, you would have to listen to your AI strategy advisors because they're better at strategy than you would be as a human. And if another country that you're at war with uses AI advisors, you would be at a disadvantage if you didn't. And so, and then AI models also can be trained to undertake scientific research and basically mimic human decision-making by scientists and further advance research at a, at a higher pace. And, you know, it's like using, running a business today and, and refusing to use computers, then you are going to be at such a disadvantage. In this situation, by the way, if AI systems were to collaborate with each other and, uh, you know, in order to make some kind of decision, then supposedly humans would have no power to stop. I, first of all, let's put aside these, you know, um, the rise of the machines type of, of scenarios. I mean, I, I think that that's, uh, <laughs> I, I'm not sure how realistic this is, and I don't think that's you know within the scope of what we want to talk about today. But uh, you could imagine a situation in the future where, in a environment, especially like in the U.S., where um, it, most of uh, you know healthcare is is uh, private in, in in some sense, and there is competition between healthcare providers, and you could uh, envision two. Uh, healthcare systems and one of the, that, that, that serve, say, uh, uh, the same population, and you can imagine that one of them has uh, adopted AI and is using AI to provide better, more efficient, again, statistically uh, provable, uh, a better uh, uh, treatment than, uh, you know, its competitor that's decided to shun AI and, and, and go completely the the classic healthcare way, or, or by the way, any kind of hybrid model that, let's say, in this you know hypothetical, is inferior uh, in terms of results to the the pure AI uh, uh, method, and then yeah, you could ask you know with time which one of them is going to gain an advantage, the one that has you know that insists on doing everything kind of like the traditional way versus the one that is actually uh, producing better results for patients, provides the same 
and again, better healthcare for less money, I guess in, in that side of type of scenario, you would actually see more and more healthcare organizations adopting AI as um, as a competitive uh, way to, to, to gain an advantage in the market. And I think that, that actually kind of makes sense. Uh, and look, I do think that there's a possibility that very much like with everything from watchmaking to car making, uh, there will be maybe, you know, some people who can afford to have everything done manually and prefer everything to have done manually. And that's going to be kind of like a luxury item. But for the vast majority of people, they're going to be, let's say, technically non-inferior option that, you know, get you 99% of the way there, 99% of the way there uh, for much, much less because the elements that, that you know, that... Uh, produce them are all automated. So let's talk about the other side of the equation with these models, and that is the data. Many patients claim that they experience racial bias or other forms of bias when they're provided. One of the main challenges with data in any field, but specifically in the medical field, is having representation and diversity in the data that will reflect the, the patients and their lived experience. How do you think about that when you approach medical or health tech startups and how they deal with issues of bias in the data? It's absolutely a concern. I think so. I think most of the conversation that we've had thus far is around what is what is possible and what could happen uh, based on you know the just the natural evolution of the technology. You're 100 right that there's this whole element that has to do with whether we should do it or how exactly we should deploy it that, that we've really not touched upon at all. With regards to bias in data, I mean, I think that everything that has to do with equity in healthcare, it's, it's a super complex topic. Using data that is uh, biased in some way is, is 100% a concern. I think that um, it needs to be a combination of the industry setting certain standards for itself plus having um, uh, uh, regulators come and ensure that there's adequate level of representation in uh, data. I would say that with early stage startups specifically, I think that there should be some sort of space left in the, in, again, from a regulatory perspective that lets startups um, not address these topics necessarily from day one and let them iterate in that direction because I think that what they're often trying to do um, is very resource intensive and risky and if you uh, force startups to kind of like live up to the same standards that you would a Google or a Microsoft uh, that would be hugely stifling to innovation uh, again around uh, uh, startups there is space to say that as long for example if that you're as long as you're not uh, serving of above a certain size population uh, you get certain breaks from uh, the regulation and then of course you have to have a plan to catch up with that later because the regulations do kick in once you you know get beyond that uh, size out of curiosity do you do you have ideas that come up as a VC do you see ideas for startups where you're like you shouldn't do that like it's a bad idea it's a really good question. No, I mean, I think the only time I, there was one time I remember leaving a pitch upset was, uh, but it didn't have to do with what we were doing. It was the fact that essentially they, this company wasn't very, it's not like they just 
came together and they're already a team of I want to say 10 to 15 people and they were all white male mm -hmm. um, and there was actually a picture of a woman on their team slide and they told us that they just let her go <laughs> I kind of was like yeah I I'm, it's almost like I can't even remember what they talked about because I was like yeah I'm, this is not gonna fly for me uh, but this it wasn't had didn't really have to do with the technology that they were producing right. it had to do with how yeah. they were you know building the, the company yeah I th that's a really great point I had a similar situation coming into a company to do a pitch and uh, with another female consultant that we had and 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 uh, we were waiting by the boardroom to walk in and you know there were pictures of all the board members and and the leadership uh, portraits of them all on the walls and we were looking around and, and the consultant and I looked at each other and laughed and and nobody else you know the, the other our other teammates were what, what's so funny and to look around at the like portraits does it something strike you as odd all old white men and uh you know they didn't see it i think the point is that when you have if that's the makeup of your uh, company leadership but in this case even the entire company it automatically makes me wonder how concerned you are really about topics that have to do with equity just kind of off the top of your head what would you say makes for a good health tech startup pitch what happens that you would go, come away being impressed other than you know really excellent technology one of my uh, co-investors in, in my angel group um, uh, professor um, uh, Ariel Stern she gave a, a, a talk recently that I think that she made the point that two things that startups specifically in this field sometimes fail to ask themselves um, is who exactly is using my product and that is a, a, a often a, not a very straightforward question because often the product is used along a certain care pathway and you need to understand mm -hmm. the entire pathway and the second is um, who is paying for my product I thought that that you know when she was speaking about this it was very insightful um, because I think those are the two things that many startups actually don't think all the way through. Um, so those are the two points. So, so I think startups should always understand exactly where they fit on like a care pathway, uh, what kind of changes to a care pathway they, they're proposing, um, how this is going to affect all the different stakeholders, and, and there, of which there are often many. And uh, again, who's going to pay for this and why? Why is it in their interest to pay for this? I've had conversations like this with, with product people where you know, they design the product in a certain way and, and when they get the feedback back from the users, some of, some of them were my team and others, and their, their response is, you know, well, they're, they're using the product wrong. Mm -hmm. And it's like, no, you didn't scope out the right use cases. You don't realize this is what they need. You're not covering their needs. And so I agree that's a really, really important and insightful way to approach designing the product. All right, so it's time for Hot Topics. So the first thing I want to ask you about is that SciTech Daily study warns that doctors are not prepared for AI transformation of medicine. How do you feel about that? Do you think there are any ways that that could be addressed do you see, for example, maybe a little bit more data science training as part of medical school? Or how can we 
get doctors more prepared for AI. And so again, I think I would, first of all, I'd make the argument that none of us is, are you know, really prepared for the impact that AI is going to have on our, on our daily lives. Yes. Uh, I think we can't even really quite predict it. I, 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 I sometimes think about the fact that one year ago, if you'd asked me like, you know, about generative AI, anything, I mean, I, I probably would have given you a very, very different answer than I, I would today. And I feel that today, just keeping up with these new innovations and what people are doing with these models is could be a full-time job for, for someone. So I think none of us are really completely prepared. I think that for physicians, the challenge is that they always need to stay kind of like up to date with the most advanced you know, knowledge from their field. And it's something that in a sense they're, they're kind of used to doing. The, but the problem is that uh, the type of learning that the continuing um, med medical education that they're uh, required to do just has never really included, let's say this cautiously, I think that generally it, it, it underemphasizes um, IT developments. And now we're coming uh, up against this. This is uh, probably going to be such a, revolutionary change in in what we are able to do and the types how this technology will impact medicine i a hundred percent think that it needs to be integrated more into everything from medical schools to cme trainings Williony, i want to thank you so much for this conversation that we got to have before you know, Skynet became self-aware and our machine overlords took over. <laughs> so I'm glad we got an opportunity. I, I was pro-machine. I hope the machines remember that. I know, yeah, we are all pro-machines. <laughs> I hope they remember that. I hope that one, uh, one, one job that they don't take over is podcast hosting. So hopefully I'll still have something to do. People, if, you know, my adoring audience out there uh, want to look up more of your work or follow you or get in touch with you, what's the best way to look you up? Uh, my group is called Springboard Health Angels, and uh, you can find our website at springboardangels.com. That's a good place to start. All right. Thanks again. Great visiting you in Berlin. Thank you very much. Well, thanks for joining us today and listening to this episode. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast. And if you have any questions you'd like addressed, send them to now at gmail.com. That's now, all one word, at gmail.com. Thanks and see you next time on Who's Your Data?